Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, welcome back to another episode of On the Side with yours truly. I'm just trying to get by. I mean, how are you? (laughs) It's cold. It's February. We're just trying to make it to something that kind of resembles spring. Am I right? But because it's February, I thought that it was time. I mean, guys, it's time. We've ignored it long enough. It's Heart Health Month here at the On The Side podcast and in general, particularly according to the American Heart Association and basically any kind of healthcare organization that, you know, rallies around this sort of thing. Um, So I am having a very special guest on the podcast today, and I am very excited to share her with you. Dr. Erica Jones is an associate professor of clinical medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College and associate attending physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. She recently left to create a a New York-based concierge medicine practice here in New York City called MD Squared. Um, And just for background, Dr. Jones earned her BA from Northwestern University Huh, a fellow wildcat. Who knew? I didn't. I'm just learning that. Um, she's also She also got her MD from New York Medical College. She completed her training in internal medicine, residency, and cardiology fellowship at the New York Hospital slash Cornell Medical Center, which is now what we know as New York Presbyterian Hospital. And if you're listening and not based in New York, you've probably heard that name before. It's, it's literally the number one hospital here in New York, which kind of... Um, you know, it makes it, it's like top 10 in the world. Okay. Not, no big deal. Just have a top 10 physician and cardiologist coming on. So I'm not nervous at all. Um, as an attending at New York Presbyterian, she actually ran the heart health program and served as director of cardiovascular disease fellowship program. She's a member of the American Society for Preventative Cardiology, American College of Cardiology, and the American Heart Association. Dr. Jones's clinical interests and expertise lie in all aspects of cardiovascular care, but specifically, and the reason why she's here today is because of her focus on preventative heart health for women. So I wanted to chat with her uh, about all things related to heart health, running the full spectrum of what to think about for anyone of any age. So this is one not to miss. We get into so many things that I think you, you're you going to love. We're going to talk about fad diets and their impact on heart health. We're going to talk about um, all of the various ways that we've been led to believe that certain foods are not heart healthy and yet other ones seem to be heart healthy. And why is that? And where did we get that from? Um, what are some of the other practices that Dr. Jones talks about and uses in her own 
personal life with her family um, to maintain heart health and to consider uh, how to live an overall heart healthier lifestyle. Wow, that's hard to say. So I'm really excited to share this one with you. Please let me know what you think. Of course, subscribe to the podcast on the side podcast with Jackie London, wherever you listen. And I cannot wait to hear what you think. If you like today's episode, please leave us a review. Five stars. Let me know. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? What are your questions? What are your heart health questions? I am happy to keep this convo going. So let's do that by getting in touch, reviewing, subscribing, and of course, following on Instagram and Twitter at Jacqueline London RD so that you can make sure to get involved in the heart health conversation. All right, let's get into it. Dr. Erica Jones. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. Oh my God, I love today's question with the interview that we have next with a cardiologist. Okay, so today's question is, what's your take on the carnivore diet? I feel like the carnivore diet comes up all the time, every time a Peterson does a big time interview. You know what I mean? So basic tenets of the carnivore diet, basically you survive on beef, water, and salt. And if you're Michaela Peterson, then you drink bourbon also. Um, Okay, concerns. (laughs) Red flags here. The big concern I have with this with this diet is that it's not just a low carb plan it's basically like exclusive of everything except for meat uh and apparently Michaela doesn't eat elk I saw that somewhere I I don't know guys because I don't make the rules on this because this is not a real thing (laughs) this is not like a a well-studied thing okay Michaela contrasts her experience on the like all beef diet versus any other low carb diet. She's done that a lot on Instagram over the years. I've occasionally been tasked with checking in on this. Um, it is completely exclusionary. Like there, it's exceptionally restrictive for everyone, meaning that there's no way to survive on like a meat only diet without suffering some serious health consequences, vitamin and mineral deficiencies that can result in bone loss, organ damage, and ultimately organ failure. Um, It can cause you unnecessary physical pain as a result of a multitude of health-related difficulties set into motion by those nutritional deficiencies, both in the short-term like electrolyte abnormalities and in the longer term. Um, And as far as all of these anti-inflammatory claims, uh, across the board, diets high in vegetables, fruit, plant-based oils, nuts, seeds, whole grains, legumes, and some dairy products, and especially above all else, seafood. These are the components of the most nutritious disease-fighting diets around the world, the ones that have specifically been touted for their autoimmune flare-fighting benefits. For example, Mediterranean diet, which actually we wind up talking about quite a bit in the interview that follows. The Mediterranean diet encourages plant-based foods above all else and has been linked to reducing chronic disease risk in a plethora of different populations, and that's because they're filled with phytonutrients, plant-based antioxidants, with compounds that aren't seen in diets that rely predominantly on animal products, right? Because remember that ultimately, and I say this all the time, so, uh, but I really can't say it enough, which is that anything that you take away from your diet is only as good as what you replace it with, right? So in this case, if you're replacing plants with red meat, mm, mm, not, I, I feel like that's pretty well studied. Not, not, that's not really going to do it for most people. Any benefits that carnivores have seen as a result of going all meat all the time? 
I'm skeptical. You know, like I, I think whatever works for the individual is ultimately the best possible thing. So if this is working for you, Michaela Peterson, then you go, girl. You know, I mean, as long as you're being followed by a physician, multiple physicians, um, if you are working with anyone to to look into whatever nutrients that you might be deficient in, as long as you are making sure that you're checking your vitamin and mineral uh, levels regularly and on a consistent basis, not too regularly. Um, I'm, I'm just, you know, for most people, I'm highly opposed to the idea that better health and weight management can only or best be achieved through deprivation, restriction, and by pushing the boundaries of what humans are <laughs> biologically meant to do. Um, there's an overwhelming amount of research that supports the power of plants in long-term health and weight management. And so I would never suggest that any single food group or nutrient can make or break your progress when consumed in isolation, okay? I would never, ever make that recommendation to anyone, but so long as, you know, for this one individual, if this is working for her, then I, you know, I would say maybe check in occasionally <laughs> on your own personal biomarkers, on how you're feeling physically. But um, listen, I'm not here to say that, you know, without knowing someone and with only getting the snapshot of what's happening on social media, it's really hard to say that you know anything about anyone. So I, I take everything with a grain of salt, but I think it's a great lesson right there for all of us. We only see just a fraction of what people are doing, of how they're living, of what's working for them and what's not. So always keep in mind the evidence is solely on the side of more Mediterranean, more plant-forward styles of eating and patterns of eating and eating more real wholesome foods from veggies, legumes, seafood, fruit, low-fat dairy products, um, you know, from making sure that you are including those 100% whole grains with your meals and snacks. I think that's pretty critical to long-term health and overall feeling of well-being. And those have a lot of evidence in support of um, the anti-inflammatory properties that anyone seeking some of these uh, dietary interventions might be looking for, okay? So take that uh, into account, and I hope that helps uh, anyone out there who's ever considered anything as extreme as a carnivore uh, diet. I mean, that sounds a little, a little nutty, but I'd say a little beefy, not <laughs> just really trying to push a joke into this one. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to get us to the interview. Remember, if you have any questions, you can DM me at Jacqueline London RD and subscribe to the show to listen to the answer on an upcoming episode. All right, let's get to it. Dr. Erica Jones. So when you walk in to book club or anywhere in your in your personal life, do people walk up to you and and say things like, "I have a headache. Do you think I have a brain tumor?" or "What should I do about my knee? I think I'm going to get knee surgery, but I'm not sure if I should." Like, do people just ask you the, these like very random, unsolicited, knowing that you're a physician? Do you get questions like this from random people who are just like, let me tell you about my nasal passages. <laughs> like, Maybe not exactly like, that way, but, but uh, the like? long and okay. the short is yes. Yes. I get asked medical okay. questions all the time, which I absolutely don't mind. Not only doing uh, mind, but I love to talk about medical things, but I have one joke that I laugh with people is, is that, you know, as a cardiologist, I'm not afraid of chest pain. I'm afraid of rashes. Okay. So like, you know, right. so you can come in and I, I remember once I have a very good friend who's an incredible cook and you and I have talked about me not being a good cook, 
but, and I walk in and she's giving this unbelievable party and she's got everything set up. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is just making me very anxious. I said, there's no way I could get all this together. I said, but if anyone drops dead here tonight, I'm all over it. And she's like, well, that's good to know. Yeah. on it. <laughs> like, that's a healthy tool. So we all have our weaknesses and our strengths and mine is not cooking right. and mine is not rashes, but I, you know, I'm not afraid of questions. But it is saving so. lives. And people right. do ask a lot of questions. And <laughs> what I tend to do is look, I answer what I can. And then I try the best that I can to help my friends find referrals and get into people who can help them and, you know, things like that. So I, I find yeah. that that's something that I can offer and I love to do it. And so, but you are correct. People do um, frequently ask medical questions and that's fine. You know, it's, it is what it I is. I love that so much. I love that answer so much. I also would imagine that you find something similar, but I, I will, I will, before we get to our, our, meatier topics here, pun intended. But I mean, when, when I was at Good Housekeeping, I had this like public email question box of sorts, right? So it was like, ask Jackie, goodhousekeeping.com. And I would get tons of spam and tons of um, like random marriage proposals. I got one from Cuba. That was a lovely gentleman, Victor. If memory serves, that was his name. Like I would get a lot of random stuff there, but I would get a lot of questions too. And one, the, but the the overall biggest theme that I would always get. And like, if I had a big takeaway mm-hmm. from that experience of having a question box is that everyone wants to talk about their poop. Mm-hmm. Everyone. What? <laughs> do, I mean, do you feel like, have have you found that to be true? Like, are there a lot of poop questions? You know, What's going it's on? an inch. Yeah. I don't it, know. We have a very funny saying in medicine is that it all comes down to the bowels. Everything, everything comes down to the bowels and (laughs) you know, you're feeling better in the hospital when you start complaining about the food and, you know, talking about people literally, you can be, you know, honestly, and this is not said in a joke or anything, but you can be dying of something, you know, advanced Mm. cancer, but if you can't poop, it's miserable. It's totally. And so honestly, oh my God. So I will not say people bring that up at cocktail parties. So that thankfully, that does yeah, not that's come less up. Of yeah. a, that's less of a yeah. book club um, But I, I, do, I hear <laughs> you and it's more of a patient thing. And I focus on it a lot with my patients. Like, do you have regular bowel movements? Are you feeling comfortable? What are you eating? When you travel, how do you feel? You know, travel can just be awful on the bowels. And so oh my it can God. ruin a vacation, literally can ruin a vacation. So, you know, and that's what you need to tell people is like, you got to be prepared. Yes. Oh my God. This really is validating though, because I, fe- I feel like, I feel like we all feel that way. And yet it's just not mm-hmm. talked about that that much publicly, which is that it really does. It can ruin yes. a night. It can ruin a vacation. And also it, because it's just it's just that uncomfortable. And it's the kind of uncomfortable where like when you have, let's say an itchy rash or you bang your elbow on, you know, the door, whatever it is, you, it's noticeable. And then it, it sort of subsides, but with the, like getting backed up, you're like, Oh God, it, this has ruined my day. It's like low grade ruined my day. You, you, it doesn't, doesn't reveal itself at first, but over the course of the day, you're like, yeah. are you no, kidding? Th- I Why? agree with you. It's that and nausea. <laughs> are probably like the two yeah. oh. things that are just 
they're sort of life altering. You can't function. And so, no, I take it very seriously that, you know, uh, the bowels are, there's such an important part in this whole gut brain connection and inflammation and everything. I absolutely agree. It really does all come down Uh to the bowels and that's coming from a cardiologist. (laughs) So um, (laughs) it really is true. It's all connected. So let us get into something that I just don't feel like people ask mm-hmm. physicians enough, which is what questions should anyone, anyone listening to this or anyone, mm-hmm. anyone out there, anyone anywhere, what questions should someone be asking their doctor at their next primary care visit? Right? I mean, that, it's, it's a great question. And, and, you know, in thinking about it, the problem with that is there isn't a good answer because it really is based, right. I would argue, as much on age as anything. So if you think about it, what are the 20 somethings thinking about? What are the 30 somethings thinking about? What are the 40 and 50 ends? And so when I, what I tell everyone and actually in, in thinking about these questions is go in prepared. It doesn't have to be like, you need to go in and ask your doctor about your diet. Look, if you are you know, eating yeah. perfectly well and you know it and you're a dietitian and you know, you know, that's maybe not something we need to talk about. But right. for example, with my 20 somethings, it's a lot about um smoking and vaping and and drugs and alcohol mm. and binge drinking and sleep and not getting enough sleep and the pandemic and how they're working and exercise. And what I've noticed is my 20 somethings are getting heavier. And so we're talking a lot about that. 30 somethings. Okay. Wow. Are they thinking about either yeah. relationships or marriage or partners or what's going on or possibly children and infertility mm. and not? And so that's a different set of questions. My yeah. 40 and 50 somethings, especially women, it's all about menopause, you know, and we really do talk yeah. about and it becomes sleep and um, what's fulfilling your life now as you're becoming empty nesters. You know, right. I have. 320 somethings. And, you know, we have a lot more time on our hands. Boy, you better like your spouse or your partner when all these kids and and other people go away because it's you and them. And so, you know, I took up piano lessons and I've taken up a few things to really try and better myself in a way. Let me tell you, that's been great and a little terrifying, but so you see how it depends on Uh, where you are in your life that that question I think changes. But what I would suggest is, is that think about mm. it before you go see your doctor. Poor internists these days have 15 minutes with you and your GYN or you know has probably even less. And so there's not going to be a whole lot of time to talk about broad things. So you need to know what's bothering you, what's on your mind. Is it that you're unsatisfied with your relationship? Are you having sexual issues? Are you not eating well? Are you not sleeping? And, and maybe hone in because unfortunately, we we don't have the time, you know, most internists don't have the time anymore to really delve in on for, you know, and and so you just, you have to be efficient, I would say. If you didn't have enough time with someone, let's, let's say it's in a, in a clinical setting. Is there, I mean, this might be a little broad strokes, to, to sort of ask, but I'm wondering if like, let's say you started a new medication, could someone talk to a nurse 
practitioner about that new medication? Or would you say, like, like in other words, is there a way to be able to maximize the visit so that you can get your questions answered, but also be able to say, okay, so just to make sure that I'm not having grapefruit at the same time as I take this statin yeah. or whatever it is. I mean, I'm thinking more both like from the, the standpoint of the clinician and the patient, but like, like, is there a way to be able to say, okay, so-and-so is going to do the follow-up with you on X, Y, and Z so that we can maximize our time in the room? Like, is there any, any sense of that in a, in a clinical setting, or is it just really, um, you get in, you get out and you got to send an email? Yeah, that's a good question. Unfortunately, look, I think different offices probably run differently. And I can tell you, remember in my last office I was in, in in heart health at Cornell, which was great. I had a wonderful nurse practitioner, Maria, who did a lot of that. And she was incredibly Mm. knowledgeable about cardiology and the statins and everything like that. So Mm. she did actually defer a lot of those questions and spent a little more time with the patients, which was great. But I don't know how a lot of offices handle that. My suspicion is, is it's done through these portals now and it tends to be a little bit less personal, but you will get your question answered. Um, but it is, it's difficult, you know, and I, I don't, uh, I'm not putting anybody, um, at fault for this. You know, as I, I say to a lot of my friends, I'm like, your doctor's not out getting her nails done. Believe me. She's, you know, they're like, right. They are just running from room right. to room, running three rooms at a time and writing notes on Epic and doing all this stuff. So it's just, you, you end up running out of, hours in the day. And so that's the whole thing about being efficient and sort of having questions. And then anything that can't get quite finished during that, maybe go through the portal or a really good physician's assistant or nurse practitioner can be very, very knowledgeable about these types of questions that they know are are sort of like the 90% of questions are asked are about X, Y, and Z. And they are really good about Mm. answering them. Honestly, I feel like the the best thing about you in about you as a as a practitioner dr jones is that you are the you're just an honest broker and i feel like sometimes we just we just need to be told like listen it's not going to get answered here you're going to have to go through the portal and so many people are sort of afraid to i think get to the the meat of it that it's just so refreshing to hear something like that honestly even if it's not the best possible news right because you just want to be able to know what what you're responsible for and what you can expect when you get there i feel like expectations especially when it comes to a a practitioner mm-hmm. visit or an office visit is everything like as long as you know what to expect or at least you have like then you can then the onus is sort of um easier to manage when it's on you because then you know what you're going to be doing ahead and what you might need to do after and everything else can be a little bit more. I, I agree. Yeah. And, and just be honest with, you know, I, with your doctor yeah. and, and just, you know, if things aren't answered or make a follow-up appointment, or like I said, it can be done sort of through emails and through texting and, and stuff. It does, you know, it works. So let's say you are a listener of this podcast and you're a generally, you're, you're in generally decent health and you could be in your twenties, your thirties, your forties, women or men, doesn't matter anyone. What could any of us do right now to stay generally well, or just to kind of put a couple coins into the heart health jar? Like what could all of us be doing more of? And I know, I know that this answer is probably super individualized, but like, are there a couple things that you find yourself always coming back to of like a do more of X? Um, yes. And generally I would say 
it's all about consistency. Quite honestly, is Ah. you don't have to run marathons. Ah. You don't have to sleep 8.5 hours every single night. You don't have like, but you need to watch your weight. You need to watch your sleep habits. You need to make time for yourself. You need to exercise. And you and I have talked about this. So I have been a home exerciser since my children were little and I was in residency. There was just no way for me to get to a gym. And so I was a Jane Fonda, um, you know, home exerciser. Who was the other one? Tracy Austin. This is dating me so much, but I would find things and I do to this day where I can, all of my workouts literally are in like 10 minute segments. So I, I love, love I love something called pure bar, you know, any bar classes, whatever, but I am a huge pure bar fan. I stream them online. I used to have all the CDs of pure bar and another thing called uh, oh. fusion, which was really more Elizabeth half oh, and, yeah, and sort of at the exhale. Yes. Spot. And so I had all of her tapes and they were all in 10 minute segments. And so sometimes I would do 10 minutes. I would just do abs or I would just do legs or I would just do something. Love that. And so that's when I say in the morning, I'll do sometimes 20 or 30 minutes. I'll just do two or three 10 minute segments. And it's better than nothing. It's, you know, we say as from the American Heart Association, you know, try to do 30 minutes of something aerobic at least five days a week, as many days of the week as you can. You know, 30 minutes isn't a lot of time. And if you do 10 times three, it's even better, you know, so you can split it up, you can do things. And so it's just watch this, what I call the creep. It's the creep of everything. The creep of a pound a year since the age of 30 people gain in this country. So pretty much, and then by 60, you're 30 pounds overweight and you're feeling overwhelmed. It's the creep of not exercising as much as you want to. It's the creep of adding in that just that little bit of ice cream every night or something, you know, it's just, look, you have to have your treats, but it's just something about watch, watch it and don't let the creep happen. And I think it does come down to the consistency. Just try and make your lives a little bit more consistent, enjoyable, but you really do have to keep an eye on it because before you know it, things have just happened and you're down a different hole, you know, and that's, it's especially the pandemic, I think has brought some of that out in people. Oh my God. No, absolutely. But you know, what's so interesting as you're, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, first of all, I imagine this written as like capital T, capital C, the (laughs) creep number. It's like a movie. (laughs) The, The slow incline. But but also the the crazy thing about the creep is that really what you're saying there is also about consistency, right? Like we are not going to get the, the creep is not going to happen from one week exactly. of ice cream. Yes. It's happening because of like the little bit of ice cream without making the choice to go with ice cream instead of something else for many years over time, you know, or for many months, like whatever it is, however you, however much ice cream your personal have, right? Like it, it becomes that kind of thing where so many of us, and certainly so many people who come to see me are like, what can I do right now? I want to lose 10 pounds by yeah, next no, And that, it's not going to happen that way. And then, and look, this is a little bit of the elephant in the room, I think, but certainly during the pandemic with almost everyone I've spoken yeah. to, including my family is the alcohol creep. 
And so, oh, yeah. let's so discuss. It's let's something discuss that I think okay. it has become so prevalent in my practice. And we talk about it is just, you know, everyone went into this pandemic and it was like a vacation. You hate to say it, but you know, everyone, all the kids were home, yeah. the 20-somethings were home and we were you know, right. drinking wine with dinner and doing, and then, you know, before it was three weeks then it was six weeks and it was six months and it was a year, you know? And, and so I think that being home more, um, you know, mm. cooking and doing good, great things. But I definitely noticed in our house and with me is that, you know, that glass or two of wine every night just crept in, you know, yeah. and again, it's the creep. It right. wasn't that suddenly right. everybody's drinking more. It's just now everybody's drinking more. And right. so that's something where I definitely talked numerous times with my patients and my family about is just sort of cutting back on that and getting back to what's really more normal you know, what we call school nights, you know, no drinking on school nights. No. Yeah. School you know, nights. things like that. So right. just that's stuff that's not, you know, again, I don't think anybody goes out to say, okay, yes, we're going to go have three glasses of wine every night with dinner. No, it's just something that has sort of crept into a lot of people's lives. And so I just bring that up because I think that's been on a lot of people's minds. When the creep starts, starts coming. <laughs> so now it sounds like it could be like the class. Like, remember, <laughs> it's like, it sounds like, is this actually transmitted the creep? No, but, um, and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, which is my, my little bee in the bonnet over dry January and how a lot of the language around dry January really reminded me of a very diet culture induced, like go 30 days without, or go this certain period without something and just give it up entirely. And there is a time and a place for, abstinence, I'm sure with a lot of things, but I think what it's sometimes harder to say, okay, I am going to go back to what I was doing before this, which is one glass a day or half of a glass a day or nothing on school nights and just my glass or two on the weekends. Like how do we kind of figure, how do you talk to people about scaling back and not getting obsessive by, you know, taking a more abstinent or all or nothing kind of approach. And that can, you can answer that about alcohol, but also about really, yeah, you know, else. it's about a lot of things. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I have a lot of friends and family and myself included have all done, you know, mm. we've done cleanses, we've done this, we've done, you know, to reset. And right. I, I do think right. that on occasions and sometimes once a year, whatever it is, a reset is not a bad thing. I, I agree with that. Like if you right. need to just say, look, this is how I'm going to reset. That's okay. But I agree with you for you to just sort of give up whatever it is, go whole 30 or go right. whatever diet it is and give up grains and give up sugar and give up dairy and give up gluten and give up everything you can. And then on February right. 1st, go back to it all. <laughs> to me, that, that doesn't right. make much sense. But when I did actually, and the reason that I do my plantable meals is about probably six years ago, I did what was called a reboot. And I was thinking about sort of becoming more vegetarian and taking some of the junk out of my life. And I did, it was, so it was two meals a day, six days a week. And then the other meals she sort of helped you with on how you would cook them and do things. And I can tell you that that was a huge reset for me. And from then I never went back to red meat. I just decided I wasn't doing it. I just, first of all, I don't really care about red meat. That's not my thing, you know? So that's a, yeah, so it did, it right. was a good reboot for me and it has helped me sort of stay more pescatarian, vegetarian. But having said that, that was in my brain to begin with, 
You know, that was something right. that I was already thinking about doing. It was a good way for me to reboot and start over. Yeah. Whereas I agree with you. Um, I think to just give something up, look, maybe it's a good thing to say, I can do this. And then, you know, it's like willpower and I can do it. Yeah. Or like, or the idea of giving yourself a little mini test on yes. certain things can, can totally. be really powerful yes. in, some, in some ways and in some areas. Yes. You right. should do yeah. that. But I, I agree that the emphasis on it to me is a little bit strange. Um, and right. look, after the holidays, I think a right. lot of us need a reboot. You know, we need to sort of rethink that. That's what, <laughs> you know, where did New Year's resolutions come from? They all came from the fact that we all needed to probably. Right. So I have no problem with people thinking about it you know, and, and really right. taking that yeah. month or whatever it is to say, I don't want to be acting this way, or I don't want to be doing this anymore, but then think about what the consequences are for the next 11 months of the year. And how are you going to change that? And how are you going to change your lifestyle to get back in better shape or in a better state of mind or sleeping better? And, and, you know, the thought of for someone, for example, who has to lose 30, 40, 50 pounds. It's just overwhelming. It really is. And so you have to take it in small chunks and be consistent. And it's not easy, you know, don't sugarcoat it. Right. No, I, I mean, two things about that, that I love so much. I mean, the first is that automatically when you said that it, it was sort of like a little mini light bulb moment of when you said that about the, the, I don't want to be doing that anymore. I think a lot of people can really empathize, can really just relate to that that sentiment. But I, I think what sometimes gets lost from, let's say the social media detox or like the social media presentation of dry January or whatever, whatever it is, is that what do you, what is the question and the answers to the question of what do you actually want to do instead? Because that's almost like what, what's missing. It's, it's that if you say that you don't want to do something and then you go really rigid with yourself and you say, I'm going to take all of this joy out of my life. Well, you hadn't actually put any thought into what you wanted, what you really wanted to actually yes. do and what you wanted to achieve by doing it. Um, and then the other thing is what you said about the, the, um, the consistency component coming back in here, right? Because ultimately it is, yeah, it's, we can't sugarcoat it. Like it is hard. Anything that is change, anything that requires someone to make a change is always going to be extremely hard. And depending on the change, what type of change it is for an individual human, that's going to be easier, harder, or somewhere or anywhere in between. Right. But like when it comes to, to weight, it's like, I always talk about, you know, like the kind of like part aspirational and part, part inspirational, right? Like that it's a teeny bit like, who do you want to be in the future? But it is also a little bit like, what do I know about myself and what inspires me to do things I like doing, eat things that I, I enjoy eating and how can I make them myself, get them in a way that's more nutrient dense? How can I recreate this for myself in a way that works for my lifestyle so that I still enjoy the food on my plate and it, my life doesn't become totally No, joyless. you do. You, ha you cannot dread things. You cannot dread exercise. Right. You cannot right. dread what you're about right. to eat. It, it just, it's not a way to live. And so I think of, you know, when I think of people doing things and I have told this about exercise, like think of it like brushing your teeth. Would you ever leave your house in the morning without brushing your teeth? I wouldn't. Yeah. Oh, but I have, I have before and it was yeah, a huge see? mistake. Right. I you really regret regretted it. it. So <laughs> you, we need to get to where we regret 
that much, not exercising right. before you leave your house, or you need to get to that. You right. need to make it. That's right. the consistency part of it. And you're right. Give yourself a break though. You know, you just need to yeah. find something in your life that's going to be enjoyable. And this is, you know, my dietary choices are what I have found that works for me. I think if anybody tells you that any right. particular diet is the diet, they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, People need to do what is consistent more. for them. Like, in, you know, if you think about the very, very, very stringent cardiovascular diets, you know, not only vegan, but no oils. No nuts, no nothing. And, oh. you know, and look, these people are Oy. incredible, Essestine and Ornish, and they really have, you know, a following. Personally, mm. I couldn't eat that way. And so I have found what works in a more Mediterranean-like. I do tons of vegetables. I do olive oil. Someone once wrote, which I love, all food should be a conduit for olive oil, you know? And so- I couldn't Almost agree anything. more. A little vehicle a little, for Exactly. Dip. And so yes. tons of the good oils, peanuts and cashews and all the nuts to get you your good proteins, you know, low fat yeah. animal protein. If you're going to eat it, if you're going to eat red meat, yeah. make it grass fed and lean and grill it yourself. Like, so there's, to me, the, I have Love two that. absolute nevers and that is sugar sweetened Ooh. beverages. Okay. And, and after my own meat, heart, just processed. So not even, oh, I won't even say who knew that we were really. So if you never put, <laughs> and I'm sorry to people who love processed meat, but if you never put, you know, a roast beef sandwich in your mouth again, to me, that's good for you. And same, like, there's just so much sugar. Do you know how much sugar is in a 20 ounce Coca-Cola? 60 milligrams, 60, 65. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're not supposed to eat more than 50 a day. And so like, if I could tell people, those are the only, and nothing else, if you like, I, I guess hot dogs might be in that processed meat thing, but you know, if you I know. had to just pick, those are the two things where I would say, don't do them. And everything else in life has negotiation for me. Could not, I could not feel that more deeply. And, and it's really hard. It's really hard. And I'm thinking of, I had a patient, um, a patient, a client, uh, somewhat recently who was like, just who got on, who got onto the zoom and, and he is, he is, um, one of my closest friends, the brother of one of my closest friends. And he got on the, on the zoom with me and just goes, just give me a list of what I can't have. And I was like, uh, okay, I'm sorry. That's not really what I do. <laughs> like, I just, that's going to be really hard. Listen, but, but also, but he was having, um, some, some more, current issues with blood pressure and, and heart health and was really like, was really on a sodium restriction, like was really looking for some, some very hardcore specifics. And I was like, okay, let, let me, let's bring it back to the salmon lops. Yes. Not really, but baked salmon. Yes. Right. Grill yourself. <laughs> like I was trying yeah, to like, exactly. Right. Exactly. Like to, to kind of like go in meeting, meeting him where he was, but, but also with the understanding that no, like in general, no one, is, no one should really be running around telling you don't do, but the, I never do is a totally different. It's a totally different experience and a totally different feeling because you're coming from a, from an informed place, but you're also trying to give the most 
sound possible advice for someone given their specific set of circumstances and what they're currently trying to manage. But there, there is like this, this very big interest with so many people that's like, tell me what I can't have. And I'm like, let's focus on what you can have. Yeah. Like this, like it's like a lot, a lot of nuance. Right. And, and, you know, it's funny, the whole everything in moderation, I do believe in that unless like your friend or unless like if you truly have, you know, 50 pounds to lose and you want to do it naturally. Okay. Then be obsessed. I agree. You know, you think about every single thing you do and look, I, um, what you call, I'm a weigher. I weigh myself. I like to Mm. know sort of what I weigh going in and out of weekends and things like that. And I have many, you know, physical therapy friends and nutritionists who actually don't want people to focus on the weight. It's just, it works for me. So again, you have to work within people's own personalities within, you know, what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do, because it's all fine and well for you to lay out a perfect plan for someone, but not if they don't do it, you know? And so that's really the Totally. Yes. Yes. Okay. I love that you said that. That really just feels so, I feel like I got this like war, this little... Like everything just feels so much more relaxed. Just hearing you say that there's something very comforting about that. It's true. It's ultimately about what works best for you, but hearing hearing that from you is so satisfying. Okay. Let's switch gears for a second, because we got to talk, we got to get into specifics about heart health. And, and I, I feel like that's a, that's like a mission critical here at this particular moment. And given what, what we know about what we've all been through with the pandemic, but First, let's talk about some of the specifics that are unique to the history and the practice of women's heart health and and risk of cardiovascular disease. What what's the data? Why and how is it that a lot of the existing research isn't all that relevant to women? And and like where like how did that happen? How did we get well, here? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's um you know, it, it it probably stems mostly from the fact that studies that got started um really excluded women, a lot of them. And look, and not for terrible reasons. There were certain time periods throughout the, 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 you know, doing research where, you know, thalidomide and certain, like it was so bad for women. And so, you know, pregnant women were excluded. Women of childbearing years were excluded. And so once you said excluded, it took a long time to turn that back around again to say, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. We really do need to get women into these studies. And then, you know, it's harder to get women into studies. Women have other things going on. Yeah. We've got, you know, kids and jobs and husbands and look, so do men. That's a good you know, point. But, but, but women yes. are less likely yeah. to join studies, which is a problem. Um, and so mm. there is sort of a, a whole um, push now and a good push of trying to get as many women as is the prevalence of a disease into a study. So if, you know, 50% of women are going to have whatever, you want to try and at least get 50% of the people in the study to be women. And that we're not there yet, but we are getting there because if you think about it, when you only do a study on men and then you extrapolate it to women, it may not be relevant, especially to women who still have estrogen where men don't. Or something, you know, so it's just something where we have to be very careful about extrapolating. And, you know, one funny statement is, and it's a book written, it's, you know, women are not small men. 
we are, you know, just because um, right. we are not big mice, you know, all these studies that are done right. on mice doesn't mean they're going to work in adult, you know, in humans. And so just because they yeah. work in men, doesn't mean they're going to work the same in women. Look, you can't say don't throw all the data out, but you have to just be aware that we need to get more women into these studies. And we are, we really are. There's been a push. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to keep in mind is, look, women are protected from their estrogens while menstruating, you know, from cardiovascular risk. It lowers LDL, it's got endothelial stabilizing functions, but when women lose their estrogens at menopause, they catch up pretty quickly. And we are still working on estrogen replacement, hormone replacement, how much, what's the right amount, everything. We know now that giving 65-year-old women, for example, PremPro, which is what was used, you know, in the, the mm. Women's Health Initiative, it was probably too high a dose, and the women already had disease, you know, at 65 years old, were too old. But now, right. I don't want to say too old. That's a terrible statement. They were older than probably would have. No, but the, for yeah. the right. But now, essentially, more women and myself included um, are very interested in, you know, a smaller dose of hormone replacement around the time of menopause to ease you sort of into menopause, you know, and, and look, as one of my favorite obstetricians said to me, if you've got menopausal symptoms, the, you know, the hot flashes, everything, you could eat a soy tree and it's not going to help you. You need estrogen. Okay. What you need back (laughs) is your estrogen. You can eat as much black cohosh as you want. You can do all this stuff. It's just not going to help you. And so, so that's where it's extrapolating a little from what the question was, but it's all about like, where is cardiovascular risk? How can we change it for women? And what are we doing? And there is ongoing study to see, you know, what is right and what can help protect women longer because we do catch up pretty quickly to men after menopause and their risk of cardiovascular disease. It's so interesting. First of all, I love that. I love that you clarified that for, for me, for us, for, for anyone who has ever heard, you know, this, of this kind of like short and sweet, but very sassy one-liner of like, well, women have been excluded. It's like, well, you know, there's a, there a lot of the time things that may not seem completely fair often really stem from the best possible intentions and those may be clinical, clinical good intentions. Women were excluded (laughs) because we thought we were killing them by putting them into studies or hurting their fetuses or doing things. So, (laughs) so there was reason to exclude And by the way, pregnant women are still excluded from a lot of studies for very good reason, but it does hurt us. Think of vaccines, think of what's going on. Like, you know, we can only get data from people we study. And so that, that is really a problem and, and it's not wrong. It's just, we need to figure out how to best do it. You know, what else is so fascinating to me about that too, is what is how, is how you really brought the full circle in that it ultimately then becomes that your information or what is important for you is always going to be through the lens of your life stage also, right? Because then it, then, you know, obviously deciding to join a study, I also never really thought properly about that. And it's such a great point that like women are, women are going to be less likely. We just are, we're less likely to, to, you know, raise our hand and say, we're signing up for this study because we don't have enough thousands of things on our plate right now at one moment. Let's do another thing. You know, like that's not, that's not totally realistic that we would opt in on, um, on it in necessarily the same way. And I never really thought about it like that. It's such and a great one point. thing I will say just okay. as a plug for studies, if you can, yeah, um, for men and women yes. out there, peep everybody, 
in a clinical trial does better, just so you know, even people who get the placebo because they are followed very carefully. It is very systematic. So clinical medicine and research medicine are quite different. You know, in clinical medicine, we can be like, oh, well, let's try this and let's try this and we'll do, you know, in research medicine, it is like, you do this, we check every single vital sign, we check for uh, bad outcomes, we check for good outcomes, we check for all sorts, like, and systematically, every three months or every six months or every year, you have to check in and go over side effects and everything. And so in general, everybody ends up doing better in a clinical study, whether or not you get the real drug or not. And look, you are helping humankind to do this because what if that medication that we are giving you actually does worse for you? You know, there, there is that small chance that, you know, all studies are gone into with a hypothesis and a, a usually, I hope, a very good hypothesis that we think it's going to help you because of X, Y, or Z. And so we would never put somebody on a medication thinking it's going to harm them. But on occasion, we put people on these medications and they don't do as well. So you do, you know, and that's where you are helping humankind. But in general, you are being watched more carefully. Anytime a, a you know, bad outcome happens, you would be stopped right away. And so I don't want people to be afraid of clinical trials. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. Thank you for saying that. In When it comes to food and when it comes to diet, I also always try and bring it back to the reminder that someone who is going to sign up for a clinical trial where there is a very restrictive pattern of eating for a very mm-hmm. temporary duration is always going to be the most motivated exactly. person, even if they're doing it for a reason that has nothing to do with actually actual weight loss, right? Like even if they're just doing it because they are getting paid a certain amount Mm -hmm. or they want to know their biomarkers for something, right? Like that, that those things are always going to, going to be the, the sort of gold standard to your point, even if it's the placebo, even if it's like the control. And as you know, Um, it's why I think nutritional studies and food related studies are so hard. I mean, for you to really do a full food study, you would have to, you know, what hospitalize, whatever, put people into make all their meals, do everything, watch them exercise, watch how much they sleep, watch everything else they do. And then the minute you undo the bubble, um, you know, think about the biggest loser, the TV show. Oh my God. As my sister once said, who has lost a ton of weight in her life. She said, you notice there are no reunions. Like, you know, it's just, (laughs) it's kind of sad, but it's like, as soon as you stopped that yeah. very, very structured, you know, um, place yeah. that they were, people went back and people gained the weight back and do everything. But it's, so it's just something where you see in any study situation, it's all about how well it's controlled and, and what the next steps would be. And so it's just, it's hard. It's really hard, especially yeah. in the nutritional world. Yeah. I, you know, you guys have it much worse than us. We can just give people a pill or not, you know, and see if it helps. Right. I mean, well, that that's what I always think is fascinating is because you'll get a lot of people in the nutrition world who are saying, well, it wasn't a clinical trial. Like when I, when you're referencing some, you know, let's say it's like the Epic, well, Epic is not the best example, but let's say like whatever it is, a population study that's looking at um, dietary patterns around the world. Just, Just one of those. So for us, it's like we're weighing both you know, evaluating that research and like what these study find, like what is true, what are the commonalities among the population without trying to draw the real cause and effect. But then we'll also look at a trial and it's almost like then, and then you bring it 
to the, okay, but what would this look like with this person? And how could I think about implementing this on an individual basis? And for some people, that's just a non-starter. And for other people, it might be exactly the right thing that they need to hear at a specific moment in time. I also think that what, what you said before, and in this context is so perfect and so important for all of us to just here right now, which is that there, there are many absolutes, but there are also so few absolutes at the same time. Like the things can evolve and things can change for different people based on where they are in time and, and what their circumstances look like and what their environment looks like. Um, and that that's so powerful, especially when you, when you (laughs) give the biggest loser example, I digress. Anyway, I want to make sure that I get to the last couple questions for you, which is, something that really annoys you. What is something what is something that really drives you insane that people do that you know people are doing like let's say they found it on Goop or they found it on social media and you're just like that is honestly nuts that has no evidence behind it but people are like running around talking about it the marketing the marketing engine behind X thing is off the rails it's wild. Anything come to mind when I say um it? <laughs> you know it's interesting not too, too many things. I must say, I would argue that I think that the sort of amount of money and marketing and everything that is put into supplements in this country drives me crazy. Thank you. Um, and places like goop, for example, I'll throw them under the, you know, just like they're, they're, they're sort of, it's a very driven, you know, they've got these beautiful women and all, you know, and all the products they're using. And so I would say, supplements and, and, and the products and stuff that have absolutely no, um, really no data behind them you know, except if you are truly vitamin deficient, there is very, very little data that any supplement actually makes anybody live longer. And now to back off a little on that, there is no question. I do think that certain supplements make people feel better. And I think, especially if you Mm. run low, vitamin D, vitamin B12, certainly iron. But if, again, if you're low, you know, if you're low and you need to be supplemented, certainly I would say, try to get everything you can from the foods and, you know, 10 minutes of sunlight, like don't go out with baby oil and iodine. Like I did as a teenager. Okay. I don't recommend that anymore. I really don't, (laughs) but who knew it it did feel good. Um, but you know, we just don't do that anymore, but you know, a little bit of sun is the best way to get vitamin D, you know? And so there's just certain things that. that I feel like we spend so much money throwing, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of supplements down our throats every day that just really don't have any proof. So I'd say that's something that I'm constantly fighting, but it is interesting. There, there aren't too many things where people have come in where I've said, are you kidding me? Like, honestly, I, I right. must say, like, probably over 25 years of practicing, I could go back and find a few, but really not. I must say, thankfully, not too many, you know, the extreme diets. And again, I, I tell people with dieting, it's like whatever works for you. If you are someone that needs to go low carb, go low carb, but not no carb. There's no such thing as right. a no carb diet. There's no such thing. No such thing. Stuff yeah. is crazy. Right. Good carbs. Just don't eat processed right. carbs. So again, I allow people to kind of do, if you are someone who likes to do intermittent fasting and that works for you, 
do it. If you're someone who is so miserable and bitchy and crabby by 10 a.m. and you're not allowed to eat till noon, don't go there because you're going to lose all your friends. <laughs> you're going to be miserable. Like, you know, you just need to know your limits. And some people are snackers, but do just little individual small snacks. And some people want to eat between noon and six. Whatever works for you, you know, but, but don't torture your family to do that. It's just, you know, you just have to be careful. Thank you. Right. It's whatever works for you, but not at the expense of the people around you. Right. And it really is. It's like, you can, I, I, I've been there. I've done that too. You know, I did this five day, like, um, fast where it was just liquid and some things. And by, you know, like day four, I think my husband was ready to leave me. I'm like, okay, I'm not really going to do that one again. It's just, it just didn't work for me. And I mean, did I feel better by day five? Yeah. I actually think I did feel better probably just because you got a lot of toxins, you know, out of your system and everything. But to me, that just wasn't something sustainable. So Right. It's like, like you felt, you felt better, Mm -hmm. but you weren't totally sure because you were in some sort of hypoglycemic. So, but what I do say, like, right. and when people do come in with kind of the craziness, I, I try yeah. to get back. And again, I use this the word a ton. It's consistency. Like the, no, consistent it's the only sleep, word, it's no. consistent amount of alcohol. It's a consistent amount. Well, again, caffeine, I think is better, but if caffeine yeah. is giving you palpitations and not letting you sleep, well, then don't do it, right. you know? And, and so right. listen to your right. body. I think people don't listen to their bodies as much as they really should. And, um, I don't know if you've ever actually, um, read or seen the book, why we sleep, um, mm. by uh, Matthew Walker. Yes. It is really, it's really, really good. And I just, one of the things that comes to mind and it's early on in the book where he has these, um, uh, spider webs, did you see the, spi- the yes. spider webs? Yes. Of like, and it's like the one on heroin looked better than the one on caffeine, the poor spider, like, you know, or whatever they did. If I right. remember, don't hold me, but I just remember <laughs> like the cafe- the poor caffeinated spider was just not making a good web. And so like, what does that mean? I don't know, but I just found that very poignant. And he was, he was really good about consistency of sleep. And I do think that we are sleep deprived. If you think about it on average, humans in industrialized countries get about an hour less sleep than we did not even a hundred years ago. So, you know, five generations and we are just, it's all lights, it's all everything. And we were talking um, with um, a psychiatrist friend of mine on a meeting the other day I was at for something else. And at the end of it, we tend to talk about the pandemic and everything. And he said that really this Omicron has, even though people aren't as sick, it has really thrown people into almost an anxiety and depression because of the what ifs. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this one more time. I can't, I can't. And so he's like, people aren't sleeping. They're getting more anxious. And he really talked about using these light boxes to like get yourself into better sleep patterns by waking yourself up in the morning at an earlier hour, because for me, the hardest thing about the winter is waking up in the dark, cold house. Exactly it is the dark, that. Cold I, I feel like that all yeah. the time. And, so, and honestly, the anxiety that starts before it even starts to get yeah. darker yeah. earlier in a dramatic way is like, oh my God, oh now no. Now I got to deal with this. Yeah, so, and yes. then that for the last two years, plus the pandemic, it's yeah. just been like, oh my God. It's like we're going into going downhill fast. Well, like and that's, I had that's almost a the ton of anxiety early on 
I, I couldn't have been happier to get back to the office. I'm not going to lie. Like I never did not go to the office yeah. at least two, two and a half days a week. We kept our office open. It was right. either me or my partner. Someone was always here. But those days that I was home, I, you know, think about it, 25 years of sort of doing the same thing every single day, getting up, doing your workout, going to work, get, you know, you really, your body gets into a mode where I was incredibly anxious. And I can, and now, so I, I do feel for my patients who are like, I'm supposed to be so happy. I'm working from home. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm like, no, it doesn't mean anything. Anxiety and depression has nothing to do with your, you know, you're supposed to be, it, it doesn't matter. Right. It, you're supposed to be a lot of things, but your feelings of de- depression and anxiety come from, you know, being sort of out of sync with what you're used to. And I felt it. And I think my family felt it and my patients are feeling it. So all of this is all again about trying to be consistent. And even if you're working from home, keep the same hours that you sleep, get up and work out, get up and do your thing, be in front of your computer, but get up and get out of that room. And and people just aren't doing that. If you, if you're feeling that way, right? Like, is there some place to start that's, that's even minute, really small, but just like a starting spot of saying, okay, today I'm just going to do X. And yeah, that, no, that, that's a really good question because, and even when you have the one or two days of X, by the third day, X right. starts to go away again. You right. Know? But, right. So the one thing is one, give yourself a break. And two, know that any habit, a change in anything you do or feel, um, taste, anything takes usually at least three to four weeks. So give yourself a break. And if you're going to try something, don't beat yourself up. If you have one bad day, go back to it you know, try and and get to it, but you're right. So what are a few things? A light box. See if you can make yourself get up at the same time every day. I, I actually really liked Headspace. I do Headspace at night. I have these sleep apps that sort of help me get to sleep little things. Um, one is this one, it's called rain day antiques. It's my favorite. It's this very lovely English gentleman named Simon. And he talks to you about going into your, it's on a rainy night and you go into this antique store and blah, and it just lulls me to sleep. And I absolutely love, so that one helps me. I'm a meditator and I fell off of meditation. I have to, I will throw myself under the bus on that one. I was doing transcendental for years and I really got out of it. And that's sort of my new thing is I want to get back to things that I know were good for me. And again, on, all right. So there, I've just given you three things. Don't do them all at once. Don't do them all at once. Pick one, pick you one. know, and pick one thing, stick with it and give yourself a break on the other ones. And then if, when you start to feel better, is when that habit is going to stick. And that's all there is to it. I love it. I love it. Okay, I'm going to end us there. Thank you for being here. That was everything. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On the Side wherever you get your podcasts 
to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.